Well, you're in 1 Corinthians 9 now. I'm not, so you've got an extra couple of minutes to get there uh, before I do. But I'm there now, so time's up. And uh, we, we were in here last week. If you remember, we, were, we had the very awkward, even more awkward than the week talking about incest. We had to talk, I had to preach on how a church should pay an apostle or a pastor. And it was very, very awkward for me. But anyway, we're out of that now. And, and what we're going to be in verse 12 onwards... Uh, 15 will probably what the slide says, but, but I'll, I'll read verse 12 as well. So find that in the chapter. And, and in terms of context, let's, let's just orient ourselves. Uh, Paul has gone and preached the gospel for over 18 months in uh, the city of Corinth, very pagan, anti-non-Christian city. They don't know who Jesus is until he arrives with a booming voice and a heart set aflame for souls and the Lord Jesus. And he preached in the city, and he planted a church, and then he moved on, and chaos broke out. Uh, there was, uh, people started uh, liking different teachers, and then, and then uh, gossiping, and getting on, you know, picking sides of the church, and so you, you had sort of the church splitting in ways, and then in all of that, you had also unholiness start growing through, and so there was people sleeping together, and families breaking down, and all of this was happening, and one of the other things that they were doing was, they were in, some of the congregation was engaged engaging in, in idol worship in the city. So these were saved pagans. They got out of their paganism in Corinth, uh, but they are still, some of them, acting out worship to the false gods. They, they sort of didn't realize there was a problem with that. Sunday is Jesus' day. Monday is Aphrodite's day. Didn't know there was a problem. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 is going to talk about that. But sort of getting ready for that, we need to realize there was also people in the congregation who, who was who were eating some of the foods that was dedicated to the false gods, and in their heart, they're saying, I'm not worshipping the gods. I'm just eating the food at the restaurant. Right? We go to McDonald's and we go to Hungry Jack's. Well, they had their restaurants named after the gods. And so there was a third group in the congregation who, who was so detached from this that they didn't think it was even okay to ever eat any meat that had even gone through one of the storerooms of these places. You need to be cutting away from that. And, and so Paul's talking to this situation where you've got some people still committing idolatry, some people who are eating the meat because they've got no problems in their conscience, I'm not worshipping the God, it's fake. And another group over here whose consciences are getting really pricked and really annoyed because they feel like we should all not be, you know, in our common day, we should not be smoking, Christians should not wear uh, tight jeans or, or get a tattoo or drink alcohol or... or live in uh, Graceville or, you know, or, you know we, we, we have all of these rules that we put up together and the conscience comes up. And, and so Paul's going to write into this and not just say, hey guys, this group over here are right. He does do that. But he goes even further to say that truth, what we said a couple of weeks ago, theological knowledge is not the only thing. The more ultimate thing, which theological knowledge ought to serve, is what tonight we're going to call incarnational mission. Other words, love. Incarnational mission is when, is when we, after Jesus' own incarnation, take on the form of the world around us or, or the sinners that we're trying to win to Christ. And we sacrifice our own preferences, what we look like, how we like to dress, act, think, sing, whatever, in order to, to enter into their experience as much as possible, win them to Christ and bring them into the kingdom. That's our incarnational ministry, echoing Jesus' incarnational ministry. When from heaven he came incarnate to be like us, to win us to himself. So that's what we're going to look at tonight. And that's all the intro, basically just to say this. Paul said that, uh, or Paul's been making the point that if 
on the whole meat sacrifice to idols deal, it's better if your brothers are, are so, you know, you, you need to love your brothers and, and consider their conscience and therefore not eat the meat in front of them or encourage them to do it if it's going to cause them to sin. And on the back of that, he starts talking about his rights as an apostle. Now, last week might have just felt like a complete out-of-order chapter about don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, how to love your brothers in the conscience, uh, and, and pay your pastor. And now we're back to sacrificing. But I'll show you where it fits. Paul made the point last week that he has a right to, to receive a payment, a wage, and, and food uh, uh, from the congregation. And he's going to show us this week that he sacrificed that, that right that he had, pretty basic right. Not something all that, uh, 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 you know, a super, nothing, nothing over the top, just get a living wage. And he gave that up for the sake of the gospel. And we're going to see this week why he did that and how else he did that in his life. So can you go with me to verse, verse 12? We'll read partway through verse 12 where it says, nevertheless, and then we'll go through to the end of verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Go down to verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. In other words, I'm not writing this letter so that you send me back a check. I'm not, I'm not doing that. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. So what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel, hear the point, free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law in order to win the... Uh, sorry, brackets. Though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize. He hasn't seen me run a race. Some walk, some run. Only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. May God bless the reading of his own precious, inerrant word this evening. 
So we're going to start looking at what, Paul, what motivates Paul to be giving up his rights as he does to take a wage, which I made a case last week that, that, that practically and pragmatically speaking, if you want somebody to be uh, uh, dedicated to doing the best, most efficient, effective work for the gospel that they can, it's this guy. It's the Apostle Paul. If there's one man in history who you don't want to have dividing his times, dividing his mental load, dividing his financial uh, 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 commitments, it's Paul. You want him to be dedicated so that he can write more, preach more, teach more, make more ministers, plant more pastors, send more missionaries. Goodness, that's, that's what you want. And yet Paul was willing to give that up because there was something greater to him than simply being served than simply making use of his rights. In fact, I, I want to say this. If you look over to verse 12, from nevertheless, he says, we have not made use of this right. He's, he's talking about the right to get a wage from the church. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This was Paul's key tactic to being such a magnificent and fanatical soul winner that he was. And if anybody wants to be as useful as you can be on this earth for the sake of Christ, you must be those who, like Paul, give up your own rights. He gave up, we saw back in chapter 7, he gave up his right of marriage. And he said, as an apostle who's given by Jesus to spread the gospel, I had a right to bring a Christian woman along with me as a blessed and beloving wife. But I gave that up because a wife and children would stop me from going to the most dangerous places, was his motivation. He gave up marriage in chapter 7. He said in chapter 8, if it would benefit the conscience of my brothers and sisters, I would never eat steak again. I don't know a greater sacrifice. He said, I would never eat meat again. I would go vegetarian for the sake of helping my brothers and sisters and, and exemplifying love. He says in chapter 9, which we're looking at now, how he sacrifices even taking a wage. And he says also, if you can go with me to Acts chapter 20, a beautiful address, a powerful address, magnificent sermon really that Paul says to the Ephesian elders, the pastors in the church of Ephesus. As Paul is going away and likely to die, he speaks to them and he says a great deal and he charges them with overseeing the church of God and and being really willing to, to fight the wolves when they come. But he says in verse 24, using himself as, as a great example, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. How many people here have gone to a self-help book and read that in the self-esteem section? I do not account my life of any value, nor as any nor as precious to myself. I have zero value. I am not precious in any way, right? We are not those who, who devote ourselves to self-care, okay? In, in the worldly sense of it, as if, as if you're something that is so precious and so valuable. Except, Paul says, except to the degree that I can win souls for Jesus Christ. To that degree, because my soul and my life is useful on that mission, my life has great purpose, but only in relation to Jesus Christ. So he says, Nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
His life is not about him. He doesn't have goals in and of himself for himself. His goal is to point to Jesus. His, his life is all about pointing others to Jesus. I want to ask us, as we start d- diving deeper into this text, would, would we be honest with ourselves tonight and start asking the question, can I even, even begin to look at Paul's example and say that I've in any way imitated it? That I've at all caught a, caught a, a glimpse of Jesus and his glory in the gospel so that I start throwing my rights overboard, my comforts overboard, if I can only bring people to Jesus. I want us to ask ourselves that. As we as individuals and as a congregation do that, we will find ourselves more and more empowered by the Spirit as we empty ourselves, filled by the Spirit as we empty ourselves. And he did all of this, look at verse 12, he did it intentionally for the sake of the gospel. So he says in, uh, in verse, 10 there, uh, verse 12 there, <clears throat> I've not made use of any of these rights, nor am I writing to ask for that provision. I'm reading verse 15, I apologize, back in verse 12. It says we don't make use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And, and the, what is the, the Greek phrase that's being translated as put an obstacle in the way is actually a little bit tricky. It's not about putting an obstacle in somebody's way. In the Roman world, and especially in the military, they had a tactic. If they were fleeing from another army, or if they had laid waste to a city and were going back home, in order to slow down the chasing enemy, they would cross the path, the well-made Roman road, And then they would start hacking to pieces the concrete or the bitumen or the rock, whatever it was made out of, hacking that road to pieces. So as the next army came along, they would have to unmount, walk their their, their horses and their camels and their carriages through the deep sand or, or rebuild the road before they could get through. And Paul is saying, I have lived my life so that after walking the path into the kingdom, I do not then use my rights to dump debris and build my own comforts in the middle of the road and thus stop others from coming after me. I wonder if you can look at your own life and ask the question, have, has, has certain rights that I've grasped or, or have certain preferences that I've had that I'm unwilling to let go of or comforts that I like or time to myself or whatever it be, has there been things you've committed to, been unwilling to let go of, and in doing so, you have chopped up the road after you? So that though somebody freely preached the gospel to you, somebody gave up their reputation to reach out to you in the workplace, invite you to church, whatever it was, but you will now sit on your own comforts and, and not do that same sacrificing of self for others. This is the, the question I want us to ask. Paul said, I will put no obstacle in the way. So in two ways, I hope you still got your thumb over in Acts chapter 20. In two ways, Paul seeks to not put an obstacle in the way of other people coming to Christ. He seeks to not chop up the road to make it harder for people. And he does that in two ways. Verse 12 shows us that, or or, or what is coming along here and repeated in verse 15, is that he doesn't want to slow down the gospel advance for pragmatic or, or, or practical reasons. You can imagine that it would somewhat slow the the speed and the zeal at which Paul exploded over the Roman world if 
Every church that he planted, he, he waited until he could take on a full-time wage to put in the full-time effort. It would take longer. It would also, and we're going to see this later, probably stop some people from really coming in if, if a, a book ended on the end of every gospel presentation is, and if you trust in Christ, one of your responsibilities will be to pay for my petrol and uh, food but that's part of your joy in, in receiving Jesus. Like if, you, if you add that at the bottom of every tract you hand out or every gospel presentation you give, you, just humanly speaking, that's going to cause some resistance. And Paul understood that. And, and he said, sure, it's still true. Sure, it's, it's by the divine right from Jesus on the throne that I can demand that. And I don't care. I'm going to lay it down if the gospel can spread faster. Paul worked two full-time wages. I think we often, often quite get, get, get full of ourselves thinking how, how much extra, you know, I've put about 45 minutes, two hours, six hours, ten hours into serving other people, the church and the, and the gospel this week. And, and Paul would pat us on the back and he would pray and praise God for that, but shame us with his example. Working 40 hours plus for his own wages, then working 50 hours plus to serve the church all day Sunday. On his breaks during the day, this man was zealous and his example is to be imitated but let's keep on looking over in Acts chapter 20 that I pointed you to uh, Acts chapter 20 down in verse <clears throat> 35 he's talking about the way that he worked for his own wage in Ephesus as well not just Thessalonica not just Corinth also in Ephesus and he says this to the pastors in, by doing that in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so these are the two things that Paul is doing. He, he doesn't want to slow down the gospel spread, and he wants to give an amazing Christ-like example. And if, if he looks at that and goes, if I can do those two things by just not getting money from the people, I'll do it. I will do it. If that will keep the road intact, if that will increase the, the possibility of the road, I will do that if other souls can just join me in the faith. So let's, let's look a little bit more at this. Uh, C.K. Barrett said uh, uh, about Paul's example as a pastor. He looks at this and he, he convictingly says, the gospel which turned on the love and self-sacrifice of Jesus, could not fitly be preached by preachers who insisted on their self-rights, delighted in the, in the exercise of authority over others, and made, profit so that, uh, uh, and made what profit they could out of evangelistic work. I think he's absolutely right. The gospel, which hinged on the love and self-sacrifice of Jesus, could not be fitly preached in that way. Preaching itself, you'll see down in, let's go to verse 15 now. Down in verse 15, he starts throwing around words that we get a little bit uncomfortable with as good, by grace alone, evangelicals. He says in verse, five, uh, verse 15, I've not made use of these rights. I'm not writing so that you fulfill these rights. Here's why I'm writing. I would rather die, he says. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. He's going to start talking about something that makes us very uncomfortable, which is boasting in his own ministry. Now, we need to recognize, and we all know, there's, there's no boasting in and of any of ourselves. And yet, 
Paul says that, that if, and he says this even back in the earlier chapters, we bring nothing to salvation, therefore it's all to the glory of Christ alone. Because if anybody will boast, let us boast in Jesus. And yet, here he is boasting. And he's threatening that he'd rather die if somebody takes away his grounds of boasting. So I, I want to make the case that it is possible to boast in the Lord Jesus and what Jesus has done and boast in what Jesus has done in and through you. So this doesn't mean that Paul is waving a flag, he's got shirts printed out and Paul trading cards, he's, he's not merchandising his own grandeur, no, not that, but he is saying, he's, he's here doing exactly what he'll tell us in his second letter, chapter 12, when he says, boasting in his weakness. He's not boasting that through the church he gets the best wage. He's not boasting that he's built the biggest and fastest growing churches. He's boasting that he's impoverished and poor. Because in his weakness, Jesus is more glorified. And in his sacrifice, the gospel grows all the quicker. So he's boasting precisely because he's preaching for free. Now, at this point, he picks up on maybe an argument or a question you and I would have, which is, Paul, as good as he was and, and the amazing preacher that he was, doesn't need to, to worry about boasting. His preaching gets him grounds for boasting enough. You see how he gets beaten up, how he gets threatened, how he stands up in front of the, the people and the crowds and the religious leaders and the political leaders and the philosophical leaders, and he just lets them have it for Jesus and, and gives them the soul-saving gospel. And we want to say, mate, doing that gets you grounds for boasting. You don't need to go and do it for free. Paul says in verse 16 through 19 that that, the 16 through 18, that's not true. So we'll read it and then I'll explain it. It says, if I preach the gospel, that actually gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me to preach the gospel. In fact, woe upon me if I do not preach the gospel. However, if, if I do this for my own will, I have a reward. But if, if it's not of my own will, I'm, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. So what he's saying here is, he, he said, if... If I had just chosen in the good, free, loving will of my own heart that I wanted to serve the Lord Jesus with my life and, and I want to I give up my reputation and my, my money and my career as a, as a pharisaical zealot, I want to give it all up. I want to serve Jesus and the church. Had he done that, he'd have some voluntary grounds for boasting. We'd look at him and say, you gave it all up voluntarily? Wow. But we all know how Paul's life in ministry started. He got heel kicked off his horse by Jesus, blinded, threatened, and sent blind for three days to another man's house until he would bend his knee, unwillingly, bend his knee to serve Jesus. Eventually, he gave in, prayed for healing, received his sight back, and then went about preaching Jesus. In other words, he's saying, if somebody has a, a one-ton anvil above my head and I'm reading a script, you're not really going to uh, encourage me for my voluntary words, are you? I, I'm under some obligation here. And Paul is saying, I'm a slave to Jesus. Now, of course, a joyful slave. He's not doing it out of simply the, the woe of threat. But if he didn't do it, he'd be under great threat. <laughs> and so it's simply the fact that he's not as free as we seem to think. He, he's got an anvil over his head here. He's, he's been kicked off his horse and sent on the mission. So at least in his heart, he's saying, I have no grounds for boasting. I, I have to do this. I think this pushes against what we often think about, isn't it? I think this often pushes, this pushes against how we often define radical Christianity. We look at people who read the word 
and obey it in simplicity and call them fanatics, radicals, tell them they need to be pastors and missionaries and we give them grounds for boasting. When they are just doing the very bare minimum of Christian maturity. And Paul is saying, all I did was what I was commanded. And we say, that's above average, right? That's pretty good. Most Christians don't. Paul says, obedience is bare minimum. I need to go above and beyond. So friends, don't simply, don't, don't merely feel adequate that you're not disobeying the big ones and, and it's mostly just the little ones that you're not obeying. Friends, feel a zeal, an un, a dissatisfaction in your soul until you can meet and surpass what is asked of you. Until you can, with Paul, say that you're going above and beyond to sacrifice the rights that others will compel you to take because you believe in the glory of Jesus and the gospel more than your own rights. So here's Paul. He says, then in verse 18, so what then is my reward? It is this. Not that I'm preaching. I have to do that. Not that I want to do it, because even though I do, I have to do it. He says, though, that in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So again, the whole point here is that Paul is willingly above and beyond sacrificing for the gospel, for an example, in order to be like Christ. Gospel preaching was not simply a job to be done to Paul. I think there will be many men, it's, it's hard to read this as a pastor and not be entirely and completely convicted. But there are many, I think, who will read it that way, or many who need to hear the conviction that for pastoring, it is not simply a nine-to-five job. And, and woe upon those who, who don't do anything outside of paid hours. That's, I have a right to, to nine-to-five. That's all I do. You need help outside of that. You've got to call up Jesus. Paul is giving to us a great example, not simply for paid ministers, but for anyone who wants to be a soul winner. And may God give it to us to be all of us. Look down in verse 19. This next section, we, we can start thinking about how Paul makes himself a slave to everybody. He says, for though I am free from all, in other words, my, my boss is not walking around, sitting in an office anywhere on earth. My boss is Jesus alone. I answer to no human. Though I'm free with all of that power and authority and freedom, he subjects himself to be a slave to everybody so that he can win more of them. This is why I think we ought to use and think about the phrase incarnational ministry. Paul is simply echoing in an imperfect version what Jesus had first done. In, in Romans 8 verse 3, we read that Jesus came in the likeness of human flesh and for sin. In Hebrews 2.17, we read that since we are flesh and blood, Jesus took on flesh and blood of the same things so that he could be made like us in every respect. In Philippians 2, we see that Jesus was, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave being for, uh, uh, taking on the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man. This is what Jesus did to save us. 
from our sins, bring us into the kingdom. He, he left his comforts, his preferences, his rights were laid down in the service of God and, other, and, and our souls. And so Paul echoes that. Paul, Paul sees that and, and he'll say later in chapter 10 and 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So everything we see in Paul tonight, we need to see as a command on us to do likewise. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. We see, look at verse 20 now, he starts listing off four groups of people who he willingly becomes like, or he willingly comes alongside, let's use the Jesus language, he willingly is incarnated into their situation in order to minister to them. We're going to see the Jews, those under the law, those without the law, and the weak. And I want to speak a word here to how we might define holiness and truth. Because, because as we minister and we seek to carry the word of God through the Great Commission to all nations and all cultures around us and all your friends and every corner of society, we have to be pragmatically open-handed. In other words, we just take the gospel however we can, whenever we can, no matter what. And yet we need to be theologically and, and uh, have the integrity to be close-handed on, on, on what God says is seen and what God says we ought not to do. So how do we uphold integrity and pragmatic zeal? And to do that, I think we need to speak about what, how we define truth and holiness. Because we'll say we, we want to go to the ends of the earth or go like Jesus into the society where, he, where we're in. And we want to reach those and become like those so that we can preach the gospel to them. But we need to uphold truth and we need to keep our holiness. But so many people, I want to ask if, if I was to quiz you tonight and say, how do you define Christian holiness? What would you say? Many people would define Christian holiness, don't put your hand up if this is you, as separation from sinners or being different from the world around us. And that sounds really, really right, because it's almost right. It is in fact wrong and disastrous to the mission of God if we allow ourselves to define holiness that way. Holiness is not separation from sinners. Holiness is not even separation from sin. It is distinction from sinners, and is distinction from sin. I say this because as soon as we start using the word separation, we start thinking of, of space. We start thinking of, of, of locales and how close we're allowed to come to other people and, and what houses we're allowed to enter. I want to make the case that we need to define holiness in relation to Jesus and not the world. Because if you start defining holiness as being different from the world and sinners, you start avoiding them outright. You start being unlike them in as many ways as you can when there are actual on-ramps there to be like them and spend time with them and sit down with them for the sake of the gospel. And so I'm asking us to be incarnational. We have to define holiness as likeness to Jesus and you are never more like Jesus and therefore holy than when you give up outward forms and preferences to sit down with your friend in their home, in their bar, wherever you can go to reach them and preach to them the soul-saving gospel that can go into every gutter, pub, and house of this nation. So, for example, let's look at verse 20 here. 
we would think that holiness and truth means <coughs> that obeying ceremonies and customs of the Old Testament Jews are unnecessary and even able to get in the way of the focus on Christ. I think that, that's a, if you read your New Testament, you come away with that emphasis. Keeping the Old Testament law and commandments are not required for us anymore, and they can in fact be distracting. And yet, even though that's true, Paul says in verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. The same guy who will write in Galatians and say that requiring these things is outright heresy will nonetheless step underneath those requirements in order to reach Jews for the gospel. And sometimes it's not only him that he sacrifices. Let me use the example of Timothy. Knowing that he's going to take Timothy to minister to Jews, he takes grown-up Timothy to the doctors and gets him circumcised so that he might not get a, uh, get a start riling up the consciences of the Jews who he's now going to be preaching to. That's incarnational ministry, friends. That's going to the end of your rights, throwing them overboard and going further in order to not offend those to whom we will minister. So Paul and Timothy became as a Jew to the Jews in order to win Jews. Secondly, we might think <clears throat> truth and holiness, and, and, and specifically holiness means and would tell us that practicing un-Jewish practices could annoy the Jews, and this was one of the, the, the Corinthian mindsets. Practicing un-Jewish practices could annoy the Jews, and you don't have to eradicate your Jewishness to become a Christian. Right? And Paul will say this as well. If you, were, if you were a Jew and you were saved, you don't have to throw out your racial, cultural standards in order to enjoy Christ. And yet, Paul, as a Jew, who could have held on to those ceremonies, preferences, and cultural norms, gave them up. Also, so he says here, he says uh, uh, down in 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not, not in the sense that he has no law over his life, he's not an antinomian, but in the sense that he is free to serve Christ and therefore sacrifice Old Testament ceremonial standards. Look back into the end of verse 20, we might also think holiness means... Holiness means that we don't add rules onto ourselves because we need to walk in the freedom of Christ. That's what holiness is. And yet, in, he shows us here that, that he is willing to give up his freedom, even give up his norms, he says here, to those under the law. These will be Greek and Gentile converts to Judaism. He says, I'm going to give up my own rights and standards to act like them, verse uh, there in verse 20, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. It's also saying, verse 22, even though we might think we should just define holiness as being different from people and different from others and being unlike the world around us as much as possible, I'm saying that is a dangerous mindset. That starts making distance between us and sinners the key sign of holiness, which it is not. It's likeness to Christ, not how much unlike the world you are. And so he says the same thing. To the weak, I become weak. To those who cannot eat meat, offered to idols because it harms their conscience, I, I like, I don't partake. I become as they do. He says down in verse uh, uh, 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. 
I love this phrase that he uses at the end of verse 22, though. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might win, I might save some. Many of us are willing to do and become some things to some people in order to win some. But Paul's example, like Christ, is that he becomes all things to all people in order to win some. And therefore, we see him knowing that no matter how much you sacrifice, it doesn't mean all will be saved. And yet, that's not your prerogative. Your prerogative is to live and minister and share and preach and pray and fast as if they all could be saved. Knowing in God's sovereignty, only some will be. I want to use here, as we come towards closing out, the example of, we spoke of them briefly this morning, this morning, the Moravian missionaries. In the 1700s, they were a, a zealous group of, of, of reformed Christians who had run away from uh, Germany in order to uh, 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 escape persecution. And they, they arrived in this uh, uh, area on, on a rich landowner's property, and he let them stay there, and a city was formed called Herrenhut, or a little, a little town. And they would send out missionaries, and they had a prayer meeting that, that lasted. There was always somebody in this room praying for missions for a hundred-year period. And they, they were an amazingly zealous group. I want to tell you the story of the first two missionaries that they sent out. And, and how it's going to echo what Paul says here, that he would become a slave to all for the sake of the gospel. I want to ask you, how far would you go if you knew you could go and win others to Christ? What's the most that you would sacrifice? Let me introduce to you two men by the name of John Leonard Dober and David Nishman. One was a carpenter, one was a potter. They'd heard of an area, a, a, a pagan island owner in the West Indies had become a slave trader. And he let nobody on the island that was not a slave or part of his staff so that the Western influence, so that other people's talk of freedom, uh, so that the gospel of Jesus could not make it onto the island. Closed country, you might call it, except that Jesus is sovereign. And these men, John and David, knowing that the only way to get on the island is to be employed as a slave trader, somewhat out of reach for the Christian, let's just make that bracket, or as a slave together took their names to the slave market and sold themselves into slavery so that they might go to this island and work for this man and once being there, labor for the gospel among the slaves. They gave their lives into slavery to bring people to Christ. There's a tale that is told as they were on the slave ship, leaving the land to go over to the West Indies. As the ship sailed away, the book says, they lifted up a cry that would, become one, that would one day become the rallying call for all Moravian missionaries. These two men cried over the open waters as the ship departed. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And with that, these two men were never seen again. One writer says, The Moravian's passion for souls was surpassed by one thing. And that was their passion for the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask what we would look like if we were those who, like the Moravians, were willing 
to be like Paul, who was willing to be like Christ in giving anything, becoming anything to those around us so that we are not chopping up the road behind us for our comforts and sensibilities and preferences. Let's look at the last few verses here from verse 24 onwards as we sort of just see the mindset of Paul and what I want you to be, which is to have an expectant mindset about soul winning. As you look forward into your life, maybe the next 50, 20, 10, 30, 80 years you have, who knows? How many do you think that you will bring with you to heaven? How many do you think that as you stand in judgment before the Lord will be standing behind you who came to faith because of your ministry, your sacrifice, your mission, your preaching? I think too many Christians simply assume some great missionaries will have a bunch, a few amazing revival evangelists, and then there's the rest of us who for some reason will just have to throw out all of the biblical examples and, and we're going to have to be those who are happy to be like a barren mother who can't have kids, to be joyful to be like a farmer with no harvest. We're going to have to be joyful to have absolutely no reward and no, no medal around our neck as an Olympian. We're, we're going to really turn it all upside down and just be happy to be rewardless. But friends, I don't see that as the norm in the New Testament, nor do we see that as the heart of Paul. He wants us to be expectant and zealous. He says in verse 24, you know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. I want to say that you're not competing against other Christians, and, and this is not a, a competitive streak against one another, but let's not throw out all airs of competitiveness. That there are versions of yourself that you need to compete against. There are, there are other people and other, let, let's even get competitive about other people in the world, though not Christians. Paul's going to mention here, he, he's going to speak of the athletes who discipline their bodies. And the Corinthians understand this because in Corinth, Corinth was the Isthmian Games. Say that five times fast. The Isthmian Games was, was a popular Greek uh, uh, pre, uh, pre, uh, preclude to the Olympics. And so in Corinth, year-round, there would be fit, shirtless, hard-working, sweating people training for weight, for running, for whatever else they did. Training year-round, controlling their bodies and every other part of their life. You know, if you know, if you have a CrossFit friend or somebody training for some big martial arts comp or, or anything of the like, you know that just because it's one part of their life doesn't mean it stays in one part of their life. Like, let's go out for drinks with friends. Let's go out and, and have a burger. And, and no, 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 I know it's six months away and it's a four-hour competition, but right now in July, I still have to be tight and disciplined and controlled by that four-hour period in the future. I cannot eat that. I cannot go here. I can't do that task. It's too risky. I might pull a ligament and be out of the competition. And, and they have their whole lives controlled by a four-hour or maybe 30-second race. Can Christians not be more competitive than that? You know what they win, don't you, in the Isthmian Games? You know what they win in the old Olympics. As Paul says here, Almost mockingly, please don't miss it, in verse 25, it says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Right? It touches every part of their life. And they do it to receive a perishable wreath. A wreath. 
sticks and leaves in a circle. That's what they're doing it for. Twigs. They're doing this, controlling their life, sacrificing everything for a few hours of competition and then some twigs. Can any of you name a single Isthmian game winner today? Forgotten, erased, irrelevant. And Paul says that we, do we not have a bit of competitive streak in us to be able to sacrifice, control what you eat, smoke, drink, where you go, what you dress, how you speak, what you do? Can we not likewise discipline every part of our life with this one goal in mind, the mission of Jesus and the salvation of souls? He says here, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He does not mean there the loss of his salvation. He means there the loss or the disqualification. He's still using an athletic term. He's speaking of losing his grounds for boasting, for reward, and for soul-winning mission. He says, none of us, even Paul, should get to a point of our life and say, I've probably done enough for Jesus. I've probably got on par with how much he sacrificed. I'm good now. Friends, always, until our bodies are in the dirt and our name forgotten, we labor for Jesus and for the mission. We have a greater need for discipline, for our mission is greater than some Isthmian games. And friends, your reward is greater. Paul says the wreath that we will receive is imperishable. Philippians 2, after Jesus poured himself out as a slave to death, he was then exalted above every name so that at his name every knee will bow. And in the same way, on the other side of your sacrifice, on the other side of your death, there will be eternal and infinite rewards given to you that will outweigh any sacrifice you made, any comfort or preference you didn't partake, everything you do, if it's in line with winning souls and serving King Jesus, will be heavily rewarded in heaven. And I still think then, we will say, as Jesus spoke in Luke's gospel, we will simply say, we are not those to be rewarded. We simply did our duty. And some of us here tonight are, know nothing of what living for Jesus is because we have not even been saved by Jesus. And, and I don't want to make you feel unwelcome. I, I want to say that I'm praying that you've been here. Maybe someone formally identifying as a Christian, realizing that your life is marked by sin, and therefore you cannot possibly be called a Christian. Or, or you're somebody who knowingly is not a Christian, but you find yourself here among us. You're welcome. I'm glad you're here. You need to hear the gospel of Jesus. Better than, than, than anything else you might hear anywhere else, the gospel of Jesus says this, that, that you are dead in sins, condemned by your guilt, and under the wrath of God. If God was to be good and just and fair in this very moment, he would pour out an eternity of wrath on your soul and all of us. And yet in his grace and in his love, though we were enemies, he loved us first. He poured out mercy and redemption in Jesus. Jesus came to the earth, took on the likeness of us, poured out his life to death in punishment for our sins so that anybody, no matter how far off you are from a Christian lifestyle, no matter how different you look or bad you've been, you are within the grasp of God. And all you must do is trust in Jesus. 
Trust in that sacrifice as being enough to pay for your sin. Trust as Jesus' perfect life as being enough to get you to heaven. And trust that he rose from the dead and exultantly sits in heaven on a throne. He will judge us one day. And if you trust in him now, you will know him only as a brother, a king, a friend, and a savior, and never as an enemy or a judge. Let's pray together before we close out. Jesus, when we consider the life of Paul and the example that he gave in the ministry, we can truly say that none of us have ever given enough. And I don't think we will ever get to a point. We are sure we will never get to a point when we have given more than Paul. And yet, Lord, infinitely greater than the sacrifices he made is your own sacrifice, Jesus. And we who delight to know you, may you please fill us, not with simply a knowledge of of what we get in the gospel, not simply a knowledge of our rights and what we're allowed, but would you fill us with the desire that you had to empty ourselves, even to the point of slavery to other people, if it means bringing souls to heaven. Remind us, God, that eternities are at stake. Make us a church that delights to evangelize, delights to speak of Jesus, delights to hand out tracts, delights to go to our friends' houses and pubs and wherever in order to sit with them and preach the gospel of Jesus. Pray, God, that you would burst open these doors with many souls over the coming months of of those who are far off who would come to hear and know your gospel. Jesus, we thank you. We bless you. We worship you. We trust you for all of this, for the mission is yours, and we trust that you will bring us fruit as we labor. For shame on us if we do so unexpectedly. We love you, Jesus, and everybody said...